This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. Hi, everyone. I am super excited for my conversation today with fellow conscious capitalist, Chris Johnson. She is the chair of the Chicago chapter of Conscious Capitalism, and she is the founder of Q4 Consulting, where she partners with individuals and organizations to design and implement training programs that access intuition, surface internalized patterns and mindsets, and address the roadblocks inherent in change. And from the moment I met Chris, there's just so much synergy in our work and we have a lot of similar trainings, but she's just this wonderful, wonderful human being. And her new book just came out, The Leadership Pause, which we talk about in our conversation. You're going to want to go out and get it. And so before I give you a little preview of some really key highlights, please make sure to head on over to either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, leave your review and rate the episode. We would certainly appreciate it. And as you listen to this episode, I encourage you to think about some of the things Chris talks about to debunk your own narrative and thinking around multitasking, around busyness, around leaning into our own humanity, and around really what does it take to be effective, to live authentically, and to meet the demands that our increasingly complex world is asking of us. There are so many great nuggets in this conversation. I know you're going to get a ton out of it. Chris, my fellow conscious capitalism chapter leader, I'm so excited to be having this conversation. Congratulations on your book. That's thank you. Yay, super exciting. So everybody after this, go out and get the leadership pause. It just came out. And so this is very timely. And I have to tell you right off the bat, even when we talked about this episode before your book even came out, I was like, immediately, you have a title, the leadership pause. I need to read it because we talk about the power of the pause and we call it building the muscle to pause in everything we do, every workshop, Every interaction I have with a leader, I feel like this is what fundamentally as human beings gets in our way of having the relationships we want to have, having the impact we want to have. And so I want to quote something from your book, and then I want to let you talk about what the pause is, why it's so important. So right off the bat, what I love, first of all, is you start talking about a VUCA world, which we've been using that acronym as well, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And why I like that you start with that, not because we use it as well, but as human beings, when we have language to name whatever we're experiencing, right, it helps us process it. And you talk about all the things that have been going on, the mass shootings and climate change and just all of the crap in our world is like VUCA to the extreme. And it's a different ballgame, right? And so you write, the single biggest competitive advantage in the workplace today is training your attention on what matters most with an eye to the long game. Then you say your future success will depend on your ability to pause, pause in this VUCA crazy world. So I would love to have you elaborate on what is it about pausing that makes it a practice essential to conscious leadership? I have just been around long enough and worked with too many leaders in their organizations, in my office, on boardroom calls to know that it is way too easy to get caught up in all the mishigas of this VUCA world. And you and I 
probably have read some of the same research I cited in the book. There was a study done that with Center for Creative Leadership and IBM. It came out in about 14. And basically, they interviewed 1,500 senior leaders and well over half, almost 75% that said that the complexities that we're dealing with is what they're concerned about. The complexity of the environment and all the kind of wicked problems that like, how are we supposed to navigate all this? That they were concerned about that. And the second most important thing was that well over half of them So we're talking at least 750, 800, 850 leaders. I don't know how to deal with it. That was their response. How do I, as a leader, deal with it? So what we know from the research and mindfulness and the neurobiology of how we connect with each other is that the pause fundamentally interrupts an automatic pattern of reactivity. We are wired to react because that's what kept us safe and connected with our tribe and all that good stuff, except that that was then whenever we came out of the box. And this is now dealing with a much more complex environment. And really, our biologies haven't quite caught up with all the craziness in the world. And so to pause literally reduces our neurochemicals in our stress response that only takes about 60 to 90 seconds. And when we pause, and there are lots of different kinds of pauses, but when we pause and those chemicals start to subside, we can think more clearly. I'm not feeling as rattled. I can connect and actually listen to you and you can listen to me. And more than that, we can look at the landscape and say, holy cow, there's a lot going on. We got to figure this out and we have to do it together. So pausing is like the linchpin, baby. It's fundamental to leadership and it is way too easy in our overly achievement-oriented culture to just be way out ahead of our skis and keep that kind of, dare I say, neurotic, I have to drive all the time kind of energy that doesn't serve. It just doesn't fundamentally serve. One of the things that I think you described so well is one, that yeah, our world is demanding a greater level of complexity. And we're not going to be able to adapt to that without doing some inner work. And we can't do inner work without pausing. We call it waiting in the messy middle. Like we've got to lean in to the discomfort to like rewire those patterns, rewire those limiting habits, ways of behaving, all of those things that maybe served us okay in a less complex world, but are not, it's like the thinking that got you there isn't going to get you where you want to go. And so I love because You quote one of my favorites by Viktor Frankl, that those of you that aren't familiar with the quote, he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. And that was back in what, 1946, (laughs) but so, so relevant today. And I also appreciate you outline what's at risk when we don't pause. This is just a highlight, but you say when we don't pause, we tend to rush through life missing ordinary moments that might actually be extraordinary, right? We miss those little things. You say when we don't pause, we risk losing touch with ourselves and our deepest concerns. So can you elaborate more on those things? Because I know when I don't pause. What happens when you don't pause? I am in that hyper-productive, over-independent, get-shit-done mode. I disconnect from people. My self-care goes out the window. I am a human doing on overdrive because I don't want to have to feel and be because it's too unsettling. Yeah. You just described it. All that stuff that you described that you do when you're like in hyperdrive, 
that's what is predominant in our workforce today because people are trying to figure it out and keep up and be sane. And it's just freaking impossible to do with the same old way we were doing stuff. So the cost to us, and this is huge, and I try to make a fine point on this in the book, the cost to us is that we cease to feel ourselves. Because as you said, it's too uncomfortable. It's frightening. I don't know what the hell to do with myself out there. How can I, as a leader, affect change? Certainly, how can I do that in my organization? But do I have a responsibility to my community? Yes. Do I have a responsibility to my family? Of course. So what am I actually supposed to do with myself and my feelings? And what I mean by that is we cease to feel ourselves sensation-wise. We just get too caught up in our lives. We also cease to appreciate the nuance of emotion that actually is the fuel for our best thinking. We do not think just in our heads. We know now that our emotional life is intimately tied. We actually talk about it as intuition. Intuition has a huge and integrated feeling component. And feeling in business, as you write in your book, feeling in businesses was not like a cool thing for many, 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 most still. Today, I still hear it. You probably do too. Oh, keep feelings out of business. We got to keep that out of this discussion. It's like, fundamentally, it's impossible. Using all the energy to try to keep it out is using all the energy to try to keep it out when you could be using the energy to actually have a really juicy, productive, innovative conversation. So there's a lot of cost. I love how you put all of that. And Mark Brackett and Brene Brown were talking on a podcast, I don't know, like early pandemic. And I remember, I think it was Brene said, unfelt and unexpressed and unexplored feelings are not benign. They will metastasize, right? And that they control everything we do. And if we don't spend time tending to feelings, we're going to spend a lot of time dealing with problematic behaviors. And so I think that's why emotional intelligence is becoming less of like soft skills and it's now being referred to as power skills and essential skills because we do, we have to be able to get back in touch with where are we right now? What are we feeling, experiencing? And then where do I want to go from there? And if we can't look at now, which is where the pause comes in, we're not going to be able to get to where we want to go. We have to feel into our humanness to rehumanize the workplace, to quote somebody that I know is a great author, just saying, but we have to be able to slow down just enough to rejuvenate our energy. There's a description of emotion that it's energy in motion. And that's right. We are energetic beings and how we resonate with each other and the world around us is what keeps the vibe going, keeps us all sane. And I think one of the pieces on the forefront for all of us as leaders is not just how to be more emotionally intelligent, but how to more deeply be emotionally intelligent. So it is about behavior, but we're never going to get there if we don't actually explore emotion a little bit more. Absolutely. Well, and so I want to quote this because this, this caught my eye in your book. You talk about building our emotional intelligence. You said, it's catching ourselves being ourselves. This is where we purposefully take note of the shadow side of our personality those embodied aspects of our identity that often run the show when we're unaware. Unless we pause, stop the world in that moment, and begin to take stock of what is actually real, 
in our current lives, we'll be at the mercy of old patterns, habits, and strategies on the larger stage of life, as well as on our personal stage. So how will implementing pausing ultimately help mitigate some of the biggest struggles we are facing today? As I was writing this, one of the big confrontations, I think, for any author, as you're struggling to find just the right way to say what's in your experience, is am I practicing what I'm preaching? So there's all of that. Because the case I'm making is that to pause as a deliberate practice not only interrupts the reactivity, which throws us into those old patterns, but it opens up space for us to hang with what's really going on, despite how uncomfortable it might be. So like you said earlier, it is a muscle that we develop and cultivate with deliberate practice over time. And in doing that, there's a certain clarity, not only of my mind, but of our collective minds or our team's mind. And I'm not talking mind melt, but I might as well be, because there's a certain synergistic way that we can learn to think together. We know Peter Drucker talks about how do we think together. We think together by being intimately connected with our sensing and feeling selves. When we're working with organizations trying to help them improve their culture and align around a core purpose and values, and when we're working with teams to be more cohesive, we keep coming back to this fundamental notion that, yeah, when we pause, we're stepping into that arena, we're vulnerable, and that's against our human DNA, right? We want to cling tightly to what's familiar. Our brains will postpone difficult decisions and conversations as long as possible because we are hardwired to seek out familiarity and comfort to maximize reward and minimize threat. So if we don't pause and we fall back on those habitual patterns, most of those habitual patterns are very self-protective or armored. And so then you put a bunch of us together in a family or a team or a neighborhood or a community or an entire workplace who are showing up unconsciously, unintentionally in this self-protective mode, and yet you want us to innovate, you want us to solve wicked problems, you want us to reimagine work. Like, how is that going to happen? It's not. It's not because all of us have our little suits of armor on that we come to work with. And like you said, we don't necessarily know it because the beauty of embodied learning and the beauty of neuroplasticity, where we can actually change our brains by how we interact with life and create new pathways to create new strategies for being in the world. The beauty of that is that what did work before got us here. And so in some ways, we ought not be surprised that we have to unlearn a little bit of that. I talk about it like this with a lot of my clients. It's like you have suitcases or you have some sort of luggage and you're going on a trip. So if you're gonna to go to Europe, you pack your bags. So you could pack a Gucci bag you could take a beat up ratty old suitcase that you got when you know you were in college and you're still lugging it around. You could have a backpack that you're gonna cram all kinds of stuff in because you wanna save that extra cash to get on the plane. Nonetheless, all of that stuff in any of those bags needs to be gone through and carried with you. So you wanna be light, you wanna be versatile, you wanna be agile on your trip. So it's not so different in our lives. So I got here and my bag is not a Gucci, but it's a really cool, very sturdy bag. But I need to go unpack that guy, see if I still need what's in there for the next leg of the journey. A lot of it I'm going to toss 
or I'm going to get rid of the bag altogether because, wow, that stuff is really old and it's not working anymore. And I need to put in some new skills, competencies, abilities to connect in order to go on the next leg. That's really what it's like in our psychobiology, that all of these patterns got us here. And this is part of the shadow. We tend to want to get rid of all that. Like we could excise the old patterns because something's wrong with them. No, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just not as functional today in the current environment, just like my old suitcase may not get me all the way to Europe. So if we can normalize the deep learning that we need to do and make it less scary to look at those emotions in light of the wicked problems, we're going to do ourselves, our teams, our communities, our organizations, a much better service. I so appreciate the way that you put all of that. And I want to emphasize this for everyone listening, because I think there is sometimes this myth that everything gone before is wrong. Or I know like in in the paradigm pioneering work that we do with some of our consultant training, talk about speaking about it as an evolution, right? It's not that everything we did was bad. We did what made sense at the time. We did the best with the information, with the research, with what we knew, and we're learning more. It's not that you were incompetent. It's not that you were bad. And a lot of times, some of these practices, to your point, they served us well. But yeah, they're heavy and they're not going to get you to where you ultimately want to go. And so it's not throwing it all out. It's saying they serve their purpose and now they're not a fit anymore. And so what will be? And that makes it less scary, I think, for people. It does. And the other cool thing about the whole embodied learning, embodied leader stuff is it lives in the tissue. Our old patterns don't just live in our thoughts or our feelings. They live in the tissue of our bodies. And so working from the sensing space first often opens up and is a catalytic process to bypass all the years of therapy that many of us think we have to do. And coming from that background, I appreciate it. And I realize that Even that model, talk therapy, doesn't work as effectively as we thought it used to. Because working in the body gets more quickly in touch with our emotion and more quickly in touch with, well, how does that connect to my thinking? And Oh, that stinking thinking huh, has roots. When I start to notice my head ache coming on, when I get really stressed, I get this tight eye band, I get a wicked headache. And I've been around just long enough to know that when that starts to happen, that's the trip that triggered to the old strategy. And I could go there. I know what it'll do, but it won't be effective today. But if I could notice that right away and do whatever I need to do in my body, take care of myself, drink more water, get a nap, I can shift that. And actually, I'm open to life and what the situation is presenting instead of my old reactive strategy. So Working through the body is pretty amazing. It is, in my mind, on the forefront of helping us tune in more quickly because we all like shortcuts. I totally get where you're coming from. We talk about leveraging our body wisdom, which is the same thing. I think that we really underestimate that connection. And I think our bodies can also be such an important self-awareness tool that, ooh, I need to pause. I need to move from ego to self-reflection. So you've talked a lot about embodied learning. And I want to touch on this because you and I both do a lot of work with leadership development. And I'm encouraged to see like there's been an increase in demand and understanding that leadership development is not put in e-learning modules, check the box. It is not go to a one and done workshop or do an offsite and then your leaders are developed. It's an ongoing practice and principles of adult learning. We have to learn, we have to absorb, we have to 
relearn. We've got to put stuff into practice. Can you talk more about really what is embodied learning and why it's so important? Because I think this shift in really is starting to happen more of understanding what does it mean to develop people versus training, like training and development are not the same thing and why development matters and what we need to consider or look for in our development, because that's really at the core of this. All of us know about embodied learning, whether we realize it or not. So anybody who learns to use a spoon and that starts really, really young, they're learning to use a tool to bring food, however well or poorly as a little kid, let's say, up to the mouth to eat it. That's embodied learning. So we're learning to use a tool. We don't have to have language, although language is certainly around and coming as we teach kids how to do that. Then most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us like, how do you ride a bike? Well, riding a bike is all about allowing the body and working with ourselves to balance on this particular tool, if you will, the bike. And we have to use all of ourselves. We have to use all of our senses to do that. Fast forward, almost everybody in this country knows how to drive a car. So getting in the car when you're 15 and you're learning to drive, two and 10, you got to put your seatbelt on, you got to adjust all your mirrors, but it's actually learning how to pay attention to all of the incoming stimuli in order to successfully navigate this incredibly weighty vehicle that could kill somebody. So all of us have examples of it, but we don't think about it that way. And again, I mentioned neuroplasticity earlier. The body learns through repetition and contrast and deliberate practice supports that. So when we take on a deliberate practice of pausing, we're retraining the old systems. You know, Bob Anderson and Bill Adams talk about the inner operating system that develops out of our awareness. Now we're choosing to deliberately say, I want to cultivate a new way of thinking, feeling, and being so that I can show up more myself, more effective. So the embodied learning part, it's really important to pause and be in the experience so we can make those choice points because the embodiment part is literally the neuroplasticity of change that happens as we choose differently. If we're unconscious in choosing, so every night at 1030, I grab a bag of chips and have two glasses of wine while I put on bad TV, I am training my system to rely on those things to calm myself down, tell myself I need to relax, et cetera. When in fact, ultimately fast forward, a bag of chips and two or three or four glasses of wine and not getting enough sleep isn't gonna help my health and well-being. It's not gonna help me be more present if it's a consistent habit that I've now embodied because I've been unconscious about it. The embodiment part is slowing down to literally allow our bodies to create new pathways to new, more effective behavior. So one of the things I want to touch on, because I think this is so common amongst people that you talk about when we think about pausing and slowing down, you talk about multitasking. Because there's some people like, oh, I'm a great multitasker. And I'm like, yeah, um, no. We know that multitasking is just attention shifting. It means we're not doing anything very well. And you talk about continuous partial attention and this divided attention that we have. And you said it creates an artificial sense of constant crisis, a state of being powered on that disrupts our real life interactions and produces what Harvard professor of human technology interaction, Sherry Turkle, has called the Goldilocks effect 
in which we keep one another not too close, not too far, but just right. Can you talk a little bit more about why is multitasking such a dangerous myth that we need to reframe? The short answer is it screws around with our glucose and it sucks our energy. The longer answer is that multitasking is a computer-derived term. Computers can go wicked fast. We are not designed that way, and yet we try to. And in fact, when I was researching the book, I came across some old video that was promoting the wonderful skill of multitasking in your management team today. And it was like, you have got to be kidding. But that's what we knew then. And what we know now is that it really fundamentally doesn't work. When we hover with our attention like that, or when we try to do these tasks, we're just not fully present. So that Goldilocks effect is we're kind of right there, just right. But it is in fact a myth because it is impossible to do. We cannot do more than one thing effectively at a time. Now I might be able to fold laundry because I'm doing that while I'm listening to something. Those are not necessarily complex tasks where I'm required to make analytic decisions or be fully present for you. But to actually be really engaged in a more complex thinking process, it's really impossible to do. And so today, the urge to get up and go is the whole dopamine loop that we get addicted to. This whole, oh, I have to go. I have to check my phone. I have to check my teams. And somebody's got a message coming on and I need to be there. No, you really don't. All of that serves to reinforce that if I'm busy, I'm productive, which is a myth. And it reinforces a negative neural pathway. So do one thing at a time, use the Pomodoro technique, 25 minutes, focused attention, go take a break, replenish, come back, do it again. That is going to get more work done on any given day than multitasking. I love that. And I'm glad you brought that up. Even when I'm working with leaders and I've been doing this myself of trying to have a practice of Okay, first thing in the morning, I will log in and check my emails and tend to whatever I need to then. And then it's shut off the notifications because I've got stuff to do. I'll check it again midday and then I'll check it again at the end of the day. And I've let my team know that if something is truly urgent or crisis, text me or call me on my cell phone. But otherwise, it's trying to have those boundaries because you're right. I get sucked into one thing or something else. It's also, I think, in this world, so many people operate as if everything is both urgent and important. And we know that not everything is. And so it's like, start to decipher, like we have to get off that reactivity that it has to be handled right now. That it's like, no, can you pause and go, is this really critical right now? Do I really need to interrupt this person? But starting to help people build on that discernment and not reward or encourage more of that reactivity that I just think also contributes to us being overstressed, overfrazzled, burnout. It totally, totally does. One of the things I am a keen proponent on, given the nature of what I have done for most of my career, which is meet with people for 50-minute sessions, and then we go. So we go an hour and an hour and an hour with a break in between, is time blocking. And so many people resist time blocking. I can't possibly do that because I won't get as much done. I'm like, I promise you that if you start practicing this and you educate your environment, which is what you've done with your team, and to let them know, like, this is what constitutes urgent. This is actually what an emergency looks like. And everything else, it's off the table during this two-hour block of time. Once people start getting the hang of how that structure can actually help them and not hurt them, which is where a lot of people go, I can't possibly do this. 
If people get time back, they start to feel more at ease. Those stress chemicals, they start to dissipate. We have clarity. Oh yeah, now I have more time and I'm more present and I actually feel better. Cool. I could actually feel good at work. Amazing. What's funny is I have a couple leaders that I've been coaching recently who were doing immunity to change work and they have this whole deeply rooted narrative about needing to be available, needing to be responsive, and also that, yeah, their value comes from productivity and all that stuff. And how this gets in their way is they realize that they are getting sucked in to putting out the fires, working in the business, and they're procrastinating or not getting stuff done on some of the longer term or more strategic projects or asks that the organization has of them. And there's a whole host of consequences that come. And so we start small, like we run little tests. Okay, so over the next week, Block a two-hour chunk on your calendar. Let your team know. And it's funny because they're like, I felt so great. Like the world didn't end and my team respected it. And you know what? I was more calm and I was more prepared when I went into that presentation. Hey, I actually had some good thinking and breakthrough. And they, yeah, they start to calm. And then they're like jazzed about like being there and all that really groovy stuff. And so the other thing I would say to you about this, and this is really important for leaders who really aspire to excellence, to those leaders that want to be really conscious about what we're bringing to the workplace and to our teams, is when we get caught up in all that hamster wheel kind of junk that happens, the opportunity is to look at my old strategy pattern. So is my identity so tied up in being freaking productive that I'm not willing to give that up? So I keep that negative dopamine loop going, or am I really willing this is where I talk about turning and facing into the situation. Am I really willing to let go of what my identity used to be as a leader in this moment with you, Rosie, and we're in this conversation to let it go, to actually see what could happen. And I could actually be even a better, more effective leader and you too, or teammate. But if we're not willing to confront like, oh yeah, I'm really addicted to my status, Oh, I'm really addicted to looking like a fabulous leader, even though I secretly don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm not going to tell anybody that. If I'm not willing to let go of that, then I'm going to keep being susceptible to those old strategies that keep us spinning our wheels and where we are. So that's the deeper work that you were talking about. If we can have that and respect that, then we can really grow ourselves as leaders, conscious leaders, mindful, embodied, generative, the whole nine yards. Mic drop. Bam. I love it. I love it. So obviously everyone go out and get the book because you talk about all kinds of great ideas and great tips and strategies. But for right now, if there was kind of one way that people could get started that would help them start to build that muscle to pause or build that deliberate practice to pause, what would be your first step you would encourage them to try on? I'm a big fan of experimentation. So give yourself the permission to try it on. So for the next week or two, decide you're going to pause either in the morning before your day gets started. You mentioned that my book just launched. One of the things I am giving away to folks is a really groovy little hourglass timer. And so that hourglass timer is three minutes. So take a timer. You can do it on your phone without the groovy hourglass. Flip it over for three minutes. Just sit and notice your breath and your thoughts. And it sounds like too simple. And oh, for heaven's sakes, that's not going to do anything, Chris. And I promise you, you will notice things you did not notice. So there's that. And then the second thing that you alluded to is taking times during the course of the day, in the morning, at lunch, in the afternoon, set a two minute time, 
where you're going to shift gears and you're going to pause on purpose. I would do that as a way to get started. And then I have a whole host of other ideas, but those would be great starting points. That muscle's got to develop slowly. I love that. Yeah. You don't go from zero to running a marathon, right? You have to train. Yeah. So I, I want to shift gears just a little bit. So speaking about kind of those reactive autopilot scripts and showing up to our full humanity, one of the goals of this podcast is to normalize humanity and the messiness of it. And the fact that no matter how much we pause and how much work we do on ourselves, we all still can get in our own way. And so what I would love if you'd be willing to be courageous and share, Chris, is what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes? And here's the key, when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so you can still show up as a leader? That's the $60,000 question. So a limiting story, I'll just tell you that I have to get it right. So that is so deeply ingrained, embodied in the living tissue of this unit that I live in. Every time I'm making a decision, it's like, am I getting it right? Well, what's right anyway, right? So man, that really um, took me through graduate school the first time. I was confronted again in the graduate school the second time. In between there, there was a marriage that didn't work so well. It was confronted there. So it's like, oh, how do, what is actually getting it right mean? So that's my bugaboo. And everybody listening, you all have a bugaboo, maybe a couple, two or three, but you want to know them and you want to intimately get to know them really well. So what I know now is that I will pause, honest to God, sometimes, often, if I'm honest, it's as I'm starting to react or I'm already in the middle of a reaction that isn't necessarily charming or beautiful. And if I can catch myself, this is wrote about this because I have to do this, right? I got to catch myself. It's like, okay, hold on. Just do a centering practice for 60 seconds. Recenter. Is it true that I need to get it right? Probably not. Is it true that I even know what that is? Mm, Likely not. What about if I just listen to the moment, my body, the situation, whoever's there, and I could just be present to that? That's it. And I would invite you and all your readers to be kind to that part of you or whatever your story is, because that's where the juice is. That's where the transformation happens. So are you ready for our quick questions? Okay, go. (laughs) Okay. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Juicy and what it's all about and a little scary sometimes. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? I think like I'm thinking now, reflecting, and I might say, who could better handle this than me right in the moment? Notice you were modeling the pause. That was fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) What's something people would be surprised to know about you? One of the coolest things I've ever done, and I've wondered if I could go back, is I took up skydiving in my 20s. My mom was mortified. And we lived by an airport where I grew up, a, a kind of a country airport. And I used to watch the planes like, I want to jump out of one of those. I want to fly one of those. So I did it and did it with my dad, which is way cool. And I did it for like three years. It was fabulous. And I loved every minute of it. And it was terribly scary. And I loved it. You got a little adrenaline junkie going on. I like yeah, it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. No doubt about it. <laughs> no doubt. What is your favorite go-to movie? Ooh, When Harry Met Sally, I'll have some of what she's having. And you know what? It's all about juicy life. That's it. (laughs) Because I'm difficult. (laughs) 
yeah. meltdown. I love it. That's a good movie. That is a very good movie. All right. What's your go-to song? Ooh, Fly Me to the Moon. Fly me to the moon and let me Yeah, that one. I love it. Nice. I was dancing along. I like it. All right. What's something, and I say something lightly because it doesn't have to be a thing, but what's something you can't live without? A really great piece of dark chocolate probably once a week and just savoring it. Just, I mean, I probably could live without it, but really if I don't need to, I'm going to go for the really savory piece of dark chocolate. Well, and the key is, right, letting yourself enjoy it. And go, hmm, yeah, that's right. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. What is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? Flowers. Being outside. So as you mentioned earlier, my book just launched. We had a celebration party yesterday, and it was way fun. And I'm like, we have to have flowers. So we have these little groovy little posy bouquets at all the tables. And when I see flowers, my heart just gets happy. Nice. Any particular flowers or just flowers in general? You know, I have a penchant for both yellow roses, roses that, that they're signs of friendship, and also any kind of freesia that just opens and is really welcoming to the day. Awesome. Okay. Last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I'm grateful for my family. My mom is here. My sister was here. My husband has been a champ and an incredible cheerleader. So I'm really grateful for my family. And I would just say, this is an amazing time to be alive in the world. It's messy. As you say, that messy middle, it is wicked out there, but it is a fabulous time to be alive and to work together with other people to like, Hey, how can we do this a little bit better? So I'm really excited to be alive. And I don't mean that in a corny sort of way. I'm just like jazz about the whole thing. So one closing question for you, Chris, if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be? Oh, that's hands down to pause, to be present to the moment. It's extraordinary. And then be kind. So much goodness and difference can be made from that. So thank you. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for putting your book out. Everybody go and get it. And please also make sure to hop onto Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, write a review, rate the episode, follow Chris. Oh, Rosie, thank you. This is a great opportunity. I love having the conversation. One of my concerns has been that Carl Heinrich Robert talks about this, like sustainability, basically we know how to do what we need. Will there be enough leaders? And your voice and your podcast is really about, will there be enough leaders to not only rehumanize the workplace, but I would say reclaim our ability to work together and heal the world. So thank you so much for inviting me here. I love the conversation. Let's keep it going. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com. And of course, hit that follow button.